Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 183, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. The CDC rolls out fresh guidelines on how to get back into the classroom and how professional development should change post-pandemic. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, while one school superintendent made a promise to her students that they'll each be known by name, strength, and need. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, we are kind of all locked down right now as we're recording today because of the threat of a winter storm warning. How are you holding up today? Doing well. Very, very busy interacting with my teachers and students. Um, The wonderful thing about all this experience from the pandemic is that when we have a weather day, we can have virtual learning and I can observe on our learning management system live, literally watch my teachers teach, um, observe the chat between the teacher and students and even provide feedback or answer questions if I want to. And it's been a wonderful morning of instruction. And share with us, which system do you guys use where you can do all that? A canvas. Canvas. Okay. So, and are you, can you actually like drop into like video or are you seeing more like the, the chats, like you said, in, in a textual format? No, I am observing live instruction in the conference tool. Um, and so the teacher is either sharing her screen or sharing her face and providing live instruction. Um, students are all muted and they respond in the chat if it's a question answer or if it's um, requiring them to present or share in some way, then they unmute. Um, they can show their faces as well and share. And so I observe and I've been able to pop into I've popped into at least 12 classes. I, um, just making sure that everybody was having some success because with this kind of wintry mix that we're receiving, some of us are struggling with internet um, strength. Right. Now, uh, fun tip, actually, I read in um, EdSurge this past week, and it's something that's very simple, but some teachers may not have access to. But basically, it was saying, if you if you're teaching virtually and you don't have a second monitor, try to get one or, or go and, and try to ask mm-hmm. somebody to pay for one for you, even if you can't afford it. Because what it allows you to do is really have one screen where you get to see all those kids smiling faces. And then another where you're actually doing your work and trying to show kids stuff. And there were just some teachers commenting on the fact that it really makes a difference to be able to see people's faces uh, and interact with them and just more on a personal level. Um, A number of my math teachers use an iPad in addition to the laptop, Mm -hmm. but I will say as I was observing an ELA class today, um, I was able to see their faces as well as the teacher's screen. It split the screen. Good, good. All on my laptop. Excellent. That's good that you could do it all on one, one screen. We need to talk about the CDC guidelines, which were released just a few days ago. Um, And I I guess you can say it's not the first time we've had some guidelines, but these are guidelines from the new administration. Uh, They say it's based on science. And um, it seems to have been met with um, a little criticism, but overall embraced a a lot of what 
we we have suggested from the CDC. And and some of this is going to seem weird for a lot of folks who are our listeners because we have a lot of people who listen to us in the South and and there's a lot of states, Alabama, Texas, Mississippi. You know, we're we're back in school and we've kind of been doing things that the CDC is now recommending for the rest of the country, but we can't forget about how many people are still virtual around the country. Uh, would right. you agree? I agree. Okay, so so here's some of the things that I took away from it. They want to set up this four-zone type categorization of how transmission of COVID is in your area. Basically, a red, orange, um, and it looks like a blue and a yellow zone. So, for mm-hmm. example, the red and the orange zones where viral transmission is the highest and schools should only open in a hybrid basis or with reduced attendance of some type and strictly enforce maintaining the whole six feet apart social distancing. Um, And then if you go into say like the blue and the yellow zones, that's the lower levels of transmission schools can return to full time, but are encouraged to continue that six feet of social distancing. What are your thoughts there? I think my I'd have a couple of questions. For one, if this week we were in the blue or so zone um, and we're back and we're hybrid and we're social distancing um, and then all of a sudden we switch to orange or red and then a concern comes up and say we decide to go virtual that amount of time, then it switches back and it slows down. So you switch back. I begin to worry about consistency for children. But I do like that they are trying to find a structural way um, to help guide school districts. But like we've shared before, schools in the South have been face-to-face since August. Right. And and for, to be clear, it looks like they are not recommending any 100% virtual anymore. They want people back in the classrooms. And, and I'll right. tease this. In our Bright Ideas segment today, we talked to a superintendent from Seattle, and she tells me about how her students are doing who have been virtual this entire year. Um, mm-hmm. And it's going to punch you in the gut. Wait till you hear what she says. Like, I mean, it is they are in a different world than we are. And I found myself very empathetic for what those kids have been going through up there as I was talking to her. So, so stay tuned for that. It really kind of, I don't want to say changed my perspective, but reminded me that this country is still fragmented in what they're doing. And um, there's a lot of people who really do need to get back in school. And I think that's what the government and the CDC is really trying to do. Um, But I see what you're saying, kind of flipping back and forth can be a problem. I know my son's been experiencing that. He was traditional for about two weeks. And then they just said, Oh, you're going hybrid starting tomorrow. Yes, but let me say that um, there's a lot of trial and error that we've been experiencing since we returned to school. And even for, for, I can only speak on behalf of um, my school district, we started off hybrid. We knew that there is a major concern, especially about our demographic that we're serving. Um, But after seeing a lot of schools being in traditional, we were catching some flack. Um, And so we made a decision to return back to traditional the very last week in October. And I don't think we were in a full three weeks before, for a lack of a better way to say it, it hit the fan in my mm-hmm. um, school community and we ended up having an outbreak and then needing to shut down. And then we had to make a decision about what are we going to do when we return from the holidays. And we, one of the things we discussed is we don't want to go be flippity floppity every three weeks, you know, changing our minds. So we came back hybrid. We are still hybrid. We're going to remain hybrid for a while longer before we even have that discussion. Now, switching over to our son's school district, they were gung-ho about coming back traditional. um, And I think they're already seeing the impacts of that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
based on the number of students and staff needing to be quarantined throughout the county, not just at the specific school where our children um, are attending. And that can be frustrating for the working parent who makes arrangements either for younger age children or teenagers that they want to keep tabs on, you know, maybe not wanting them at home alone. Um, so it, it's it's hard. We have to do what's best for students no matter what, and we have to keep everybody safe. And so going back to the model that they're going to provide with the color coding, I do think it's clever. I do think it's needed. The people in the North, they are terrified to go back to school. They have had high numbers of of positives, high numbers, maybe in their area of deaths. Um, Specifically, we could talk about New York. It is a very scary thing to to do um, or to be required to do right now. And I think that there's actually, you know, a little heated discussion amongst the teachers and the teacher unions. Mm -hmm. But as long as they provide teachers with what they need and and get them the supplies they need, that was a really huge factor for all of us in the South. having the PPE, having the sanitizing supplies, social social distancing markers in schools. But I think an even bigger discussion, which we recently shared on one of our earlier episodes, is the fact that we're not making teachers a priority during this vaccination cycle. Yes. And that's that is I 100 percent agree with you on that. And and the plan recommends that they expand testing, surveillance and prioritize teachers for vaccinations. But it's just a recommendation. I I'm kind of getting to the point where I feel like we're into this vaccination cycle. We know some people out there are bending the rules some. I mean, we just need to bump teachers up. Like, we, we've we got to get them vaccinated just because they affect such a huge part of every community in the entire country. And That's right. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just time. Um, and I know some states, teachers are getting vaccinated. And I know teachers that have been getting vaccinated, but it's usually because of a pre-existing condition. Um, so I would like to see that not just a recommendation, but a, at least a strong recommendation or a mandate. I don't know what your thoughts are there. No, I agree. And it's past time. Um, I could probably get on a soapbox about it. And it seems to be making a difference. I mean, so far, it looks like cases do continue to drop as this vaccine is rolling out. Um, and I would just feel like, you know, we, we could limit so much spread because teachers are around so many people if we just really started to get those shots to the teachers uh, around the community. So hopefully we'll see that take place uh, soon enough. So so that's where we are with the CDC thing. I'm trying to continue to balance, you know, not just talking COVID the entire time in our episodes. Um, I did see an interesting story from a gentleman named Douglas Reeves on how um, PD must change after the pandemic. So uh, have you really thought about this, the, the idea that maybe we need to look at PD differently? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at um, all teacher practices, all teacher practices have been impacted in some way um, by the pandemic and the COVID protocols that we've put in place. And I know you said that you've tried really hard not to just talk about COVID, but if we're going to talk about education, we're going to talk about teaching, we're going to talk about what's best for teachers in regard to training and improving practices, you really don't have a choice but to continue to share um, what's current and what's relevant and then how it may impact the future. I think that We will have to continue to provide teachers with grand support on providing virtual learning because I don't think that it's going away. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there are a pocket of teachers out there that may be considering retirement or may be frustrated with teaching, not just because of the COVID conditions that they're worried about, but their ability to provide high quality 
um, virtual learning requires some tech skills that um, a number of them are missing. So being able to tailor your professional development by teacher is has is not a new practice. It should have in a discussion for administrators, but if it's not, it has to become a priority now because you don't want to bore your teachers who are extremely tech savvy, who are using multiple tools and providing highly engaging quality instruction for students on a virtual platform. You don't want to bore them with redundant steps on how to do that. Engage them and let them be teacher leaders in your building. Allow them to work with teachers one-on-one or to lead professional learning communities or even lead um, a staff-wide professional development, whether it has to be virtual or or face-to-face, depending on your numbers. Um, Tap into the people that are in your building. Um, I think that that's important. One of the practices that I learned a long time ago, and it's just um, very ironic that it's Douglas Reeves' uh, article that we're reviewing. Um, early on in my admin career, I was able to participate in some professional development in a model schools conference um, that he's an advocate for. And I learned then the importance of not only um, differentiating your professional development, but really paying attention to each individual teacher. And one of the practices that I I learned about was throughout the year when you're evaluating and observing instruction and you have those post-conferences with teachers, the evaluator often recognizes the weaknesses and gives suggestion, coaching, and feedback on how to improve it. But a step that I took further that I learned from him is asking teachers where they think they need to learn and grow, and then working together to develop a professional development plan, which he calls a profile. Um, And it's action steps that the teacher will take to improve their skill or their practice. Um, And then you meet through maybe twice throughout the year to discuss progress, modifications needed, or if you need to help them out in, in growing in that area. And I just love that because it puts... Um, not just the responsibility per se, but ownership. Right. And the teacher doesn't feel like it's a you know required task handed down from an administrator, but they take ownership in wanting to be better at their craft um, and then being able to share what they've learned with other teachers. Yeah. And so Mr. Reeves, I mean, he, he touches on several different things and, and tailored PD, as you've been talking about, is one of them. He's like, practice what we preach. I mean, we talk about personalized learning for students. Why are we not doing personalized learning for teachers? And, and so I think you guys are in step there. Another thing that he talked about was less inspiration, more perspiration. He says, rhetoric about racial justice is hollow. He says, without specific actions to remedy inequitable practices, um, we're really not getting anywhere. So he he wants to see actions rather than just talk about racial injustice. What are your thoughts there? I completely disagree with him. If okay. we don't talk about it, if we don't shout to the hills about it, then no one's going to think about it, which means no one's going to take the steps needed to put funding and resources in place to to deal with it. So I completely ag- disagree. And perhaps he's saying that basically back up all of your talking, but teachers are not in the position to do anything but talk about it, to bring attention to it so that those who are in those higher places can make some better action steps. So yeah, I think maybe he point. should have worded that differently. Yeah, and, and let me let me read a, a quote from him just to make sure that you guys are on the same page. I want to be fair to him. He says, the notion that feelings and beliefs must precede changes in actions and practices is unsupported by evidence. He says, on the contrary, behavior often precedes 
belief. So, but you make a valid point. You're saying like teachers can't lead this conversation. This has to come from administrators. Am I hearing you right? Administrators, legislators, those in in charge of the funding. Yeah, legislators. That's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you. I'm glad you were candid and pushed back on us. Uh, push back on that one for us. Um, the other thing he says is um, beyond one shot events in PD workshops and keynote addresses may be entertaining, but to change teaching and learning, he says you need to do what he calls deliberate practice. Practice that is motivated by a compelling desire to improve requires extra effort. Is sustained over a long period of time and is accompanied by feedback. Uh, I mean, what is PD like in your environment? I mean, do you guys bring in a lot of outsiders or is it something that's kind of a constant project that you're working on? I think that your professional development needs vary by person, by year, by climate, by the student body that you serve. Uh, We have a combination of consultants that do serve our teachers, as well as teacher leaders who serve our teachers, and then again, administration who serve our teachers. And so I just think that it depends, and I can get a little more specific for you. Um, Being a new principal at the site that I'm serving in, clearly I took a look at needs assessment survey data that's collected every spring from parents, students, and teachers. Also analyzing high stakes test data to identify areas that we're weak in and where we need to grow. Um, And if overall we are seeing an issue across one particular content area, then you don't have necessarily a rock star that can carry that weight of a team. So you do seek outside professional um, support from consulting firms to come in and work with your teachers throughout the year and then look for evidence of that training in uh, classroom instruction. Um, Sometimes you bring in speakers to help motivate because you want an outside perspective Mm -hmm. and teachers may be more willing and open and um, with with an outsider um, to share what they think that they need and to be motivated by someone who's been in their position, um, but does not serve in their school every day. So I use a combination, um, a variety of ways to support my teachers and, and to train them. And one important key that I think sometimes we fail to do is to conduct surveys after your professional development sessions. So whether they're provided in-house or if you bring someone in, you need to have regular surveys and then review that information. Um, Sometimes the feedback from the consultant is not reviewed. They give you um, suggested next steps for not just for the teachers, but for administrators. And you should actually put them in place so that you can see the benefits and the outcomes that the consultant recommends. And then the survey is important because if Teachers don't find the training valuable. You have no idea if you don't collect that feedback. Right. Or somebody might have been great and you need to bring them back next year, you know, or later. Actually, you know, that's correct. Year. And take it to another level or mm-hmm. um, to a next step or even sidebarring and going to another topic that was not really originally identified. Yeah. The, the next topic he mentions, Mr. Rees mentions, is um, from evaluation to coaching. And he is sharply critical of the traditional teacher evaluation process. And that's, you know, the announced classroom visits and compliance driven into the year paperwork. But I think this might go back to legislators again, that that's a requirement in our state, right? To do these that's evaluations. That's very true. It is. And I, you know, make sure that I cross those T's and I dot those I's. 
But I also learned in the Principals Academy a few years ago that it's much more important for me to coach mm-hmm. my teachers than to be an evaluator. So um, participating with them all year long in instructional planning and, and, and professional development, being able to provide that feedback, again, being in classrooms and looking for evidence of what they've learned in training, um, and then being able to go back and, and coach again makes it a little bit easier to give them um, that evaluative feedback at the end of the year. It's not a surprise. It's not a knee jerk. It doesn't hurt feelings um, if you've been able to do it all year long. And that was an area that I had to grow in. Right. And and this is interesting, though, that you feel that way. He feels this way. I'm sure a lot, a lot of educators feel like the evaluation process needs to be at least revamped or just may not you know, may feel like busy work, but who is has access to the legislators that are requiring this type of stuff? I mean, is this stuff like, is it regulatory? Is it coming straight down from the State Department of Education? Or is it, you know, a bunch of guys elected to office who sit on the education committee who say, you know, we're going to require this. I don't know, like why it's happening and why they're not getting the message. I think there is a combination of communication between your state department of education as well as your legislators. And I don't think that it's that they don't hear us. Um, Oftentimes it's hard to take away from old practices Mm -hmm. if you're not very comfortable with the new way. And if it's not been, if it's not clearly established, if it's not going to be consistent across the board, across your state, then you have to do what, what you know you can receive um, consistent feedback from, which right now in the state of Mississippi is the teacher growth rubric. Um, we've all been trained. Um, we've been taught, you know, how to unpeel instruction, how to look for artifacts and evidence of the standard and the skill being taught and evidence of learning outcomes for students and then being able to provide um, growth areas for teachers. And it has evolved, I would say, over the last seven years greatly. Um, but we just we still have a ways to go. And it's not just for our state. I think it's a nationwide um, perspective that has to be analyzed. And then that takes you back to how we value and how we see teachers. Um, there's a lot of us that feel educators are not uh, respected the way that we need to be, yet we're held to very high standards requiring a license, mm-hmm. requiring particular courses in order to obtain licensure, and then, of course, um, a rigid evaluation system, um, but then not comp- compensating teachers for their great value um, to what we contribute to our nation. Yeah, there's without a doubt an imbalance uh, with everything that you just cited there um, and how we look at teachers and, and the requirements and the things we expect of them. We hold them to such a high bar. Um, that's about it for the time we have today. Are you ready for today's Bright Idea? Yes. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a superintendent of a large school district that has made a promise to each student, a promise that each student will be known by name, strength, and in need. Dr. Susan Enfield serves about 17,500 students in the Highline School District in Washington State, and she's here to tell us how she pulls off what's known as the Highline Promise. Susan, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, we're, we're so excited you're here, and I want to start by rolling back the clock to 2012, where I understand you were probably a fairly new superintendent at Highland at the time, and I guess you had this idea that each student needed to really be known. Do I have that right? Yeah, so uh, I began my uh, career in education as a high school teacher, and I always felt that the the most basic form of respect I could show my students was to know them by name. So as I continued my my educational 
in my educational career, I said, you know, as educators, we really need to know every student by name and need. But when I got to Highline in 2012, they were reading a book by Yvette Jackson called The Pedagogy of Confidence. Mm -hmm. And the premise of Dr. Jackson's book is that what if we treated every child as gifted? And it was at a meeting with some principals here in Highline that I said, well, what if we committed to knowing every student by name, strength, and need? Um, knowing that by identifying the gifts and the talents that our students bring to us, we can build their confidence and resiliency as well. Um, and it stuck. <laughs> and so that became the foundation of our Highline Promise, which um, has evolved today into being knowing every student by name, strength, and need, so they graduate prepared for the future they choose. All right. So let's drill down on that a little bit. What exactly does that mean to know a child by name, strength, and need? That one educator in the building knows specifically about one student? Yeah, well, I am a big believer in the power of one. Um, you know, in my experience as a high school teacher, it really only takes one meaningful um, relationship with an adult in their school mm -hmm. to make sure a child is seen and connected and remains engaged. So yes, we want to make sure that every student can say that they have an adult at their school whom they trust, who knows them, who cares about them, and whom they can go to if they need help or support. What was it like before you guys made this promise? I mean, did you ever, as you kind of started digging in, did you start to realize that we're not even close to accomplishing this? Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, I think everyone who goes into teaching or educational leadership would agree with with the need to know every student by name, strength, and need. I, I think that that most educators come with that spirit and intent. But operationalizing that in a large system, yes, it's a challenge to make sure that um, we that no child goes invisible, right? That that every child has that connection for um, not just their academic growth, but their social and emotional growth as well. This was a big challenge. I mean, I don't know if you're the ideas person, you're like, Hey, let's do this. Did you have people in the room, your lieutenants, if you will, that were like, all right, that's a great idea. This is a lot harder to, like you said, operationally do, or did you kind of have a whole plan of how we were going to pull this off? Um, no, I mean, so no, I mean, I didn't have a, a fully baked plan when, when we, you know, committed to this and, I, I think over the years we have found different ways to do it and we've had fits and starts around operationalizing it at scale. And I think that at its heart, our promise to some degree is aspirational, right? I mean, it is both aspirational and the fact that, no, I can't look, look you in the eye today and say every one of our 17,500 students is known by name, strength and need. But I can tell you that um, myself and our team of educators across Highline gets up every day to make that the reality. So you have to have something that you're aspiring to. I would add too that 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 our promise is also very much our um, commitment, our very very um, genuine and deep seated commitment to equity. Because if we could say in this country that every student in our public schools was known by name, strength, and need and graduated prepared for the future they chose for themselves, not a future that was predetermined for them by um, by an adult, uh, we would have an equitable school system. I mean, you, you said that it really just takes one. I remember, you know, Drew Sanzenbacher, one of my teachers who kind of followed me through my high school years, even though he wasn't my teacher. And we he didn't necessarily talk about academics with me. He would talk about just, you know, life in general, which I kind of felt like I was recognized like that. I mean, so from an operational standpoint, do your teachers, are they assigned students? I mean, is it is it that much into the minutia of things? 
Yeah. So, you know, under the heading of never waste a good crisis, when we went into distance learning last March, uh, we put together various planning teams that consisted of teachers and administrators and folks across the district to, to focus on different aspects of our plan for distance learning. And one of those teams was a whole child planning team. And my charge to them was, you know, the need now is greater than ever before that, that we work to deliver on this promise. Um, so we've got to make sure that our kids are staying connected to their school community. And so we developed what we're calling our one-to-one connections. And we've asked schools to really attach a sign an adult to a student and have that adult follow up with, just connect with them on a, on a weekly basis, nothing lengthy, nothing, you know, that, that should take a huge amount of time, but just connecting and saying, Hey, um, how you doing? What's going on? Just so that that relationship continues, um, especially in distance learning. What we're what we're evolving to now is how do we take this idea of one on one connections and um, and and use a, a, a tiered approach? So you know, for those students who. Um, everyone knows and, and are really connected. Maybe they don't need that weekly touch point. Right. Um, maybe it's every other week, but for those students that we're really worried about, um, maybe they really do need that, that, that weekly touch point. So I'm asking principals now to say, okay, rather than taking it as a blanket approach, let's take a more targeted approach to ensure that the students who are really needing that connection and not getting it, receive it. Is this something that's overt that like students are aware of? I mean, does, does a, a teacher who, a guy who teaches government, you know, call up somebody or, or message somebody and say, Hey, I'm assigned you and I'm supposed to check on you. Or is it a little bit more covert and that it's just supposed to be like a natural organic thing? It's really interesting that you say that because I was having this conversation this week with some students and with some principals. Um, I think it varies by school, you know, um, it, it, I, I think the challenge, to be really honest with you, Nick, is I I don't want this to be a thing. I don't want it to be something that f- people feel like they have to do. This is this is because this is what we have to do. This is nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. If if we if we don't have a, a connection to our kids and our kids in turn don't feel a connection to their school community, it doesn't matter what you're trying to teach them because you have to reach them to teach them, right? So what I'm, what I'm trying to instill in our folks is all I'm asking you to do is that which you do, many of you, on a daily basis already. But how do we, with intention, make sure that every student gets that, right? I mean, I think that we sort of take it as, well, yeah, you know, most, most kids have that connection. I get that most kids do, mm-hmm. but we have to make sure now that all kids do. Why was this a passion of yours? Did you watch kids get overlooked back when you were teaching high school? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, and, and I, I would, when I meet with students now in Highline, you know, I'll, I'll hear from kids that, you know, really don't, don't feel uh, as seen um, as we'd like them to be. And, and I think, too, it takes on, as we work to becoming more equitable talking about being an anti-racist um, organization, really challenging the, the, the system of, of public education at its core. Um, I, I think that it's also this notion of really, really seeing our students and learning 
um, who they are and respecting them for who they are and honoring their culture and where they come from. Um, I think that that, that is also important um, because at the end of the day, um, students need and, and crave respect um, and validation just as adults do. As you've kind of navigated the pandemic, has there been tools that your principals and your teachers are using that have allowed you to continue this that have helped in a big way? Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, the, the tools, I think, have gotten in the way of the effort more than anything else, because we asked we asked staff to, to document the connections just to make sure that they were happening. But more importantly, to daylight any patterns or trends with kids that maybe needed some intervention. Um, and our our student information system is Synergy. But, but we adopted that last year, and so some staff aren't as comfortable with it. So um, having to log the contact into Synergy has been a barrier for some. So we're working with schools to figure out how, they, um, how it makes sense for them to, to track this. And, and again, I think my, my challenge is I, I want people to embrace the spirit of this, not the technical compliance component of this. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, I don't care how they're tracking it. I don't care how they're making the connections. What I care about is that a principal can look me in the eye or more importantly, a parent or family member in the eye and say, we know your son or daughter and, and we see them and we connect with them. Um, that's, that's, that's what we have to get to. Do you encourage, I guess, the the teachers to actually have a previous connection with the students they're working with? Or is it more of just, you know, somebody they may know from, you know, visiting a class or something? Yeah. So we left, I, I left that we have, we have amazing building principals and amazing teachers and counselors and staff. And I really left that to building principals to figure out, you know, in some cases there were already those natural connections. So just leave those in place. I think that the goal here was to identify um, the kids that didn't already have those natural connections. And so, you know, I'll give you a really clear example of this. Um, in, in prior years, you know, we have, we have done an exercise where principals have, you know, taken photos of every single student and put, laid them out, you know, in the cafeteria for a staff meeting and had staff members go and put, you know, a sticker next to a student that they knew really, really well. And then step back to see which of those photos didn't have any stickers next to them. Mm-hmm. Those are the kids that we have to assign someone to. What right? a, that's the a great exercise. That's kudos to all that. Yeah, it's powerful. It's really, really powerful. And and I will tell you, when we launched this effort this year, I had a teacher email me and she was really offended. And she said, I'm offended that you would think that that I don't already do this. You know, we we do this, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you know, my intent was in no way to a offend you or b imply that so many of you are doing this already. I know you are. Um, but I also think you would have to agree with me that despite your best efforts and the efforts of your colleagues in your school building, there are children who are not seen daily and who are not connected to their school community in the way that you and I would want them to be. And and that's what this is about. It's about making sure that every child has that opportunity for connection by intention and by design, not by chance. No doubt. Let me ask you a question that kind of doesn't have a whole lot to do with this, but more about the time that we're in. And and you're in outside of Seattle, right? I guess you're about an hour outside. 
No, no, not even. 2015, okay. 20, okay, so yeah. you're, you're close to Seattle. You're up in Washington. The The rules have been different in different parts of the country. I'm, I'm located in the South. We've been more aggressive about trying to push kids. And by say we, our government has been more aggressive about getting kids back in the classroom. I, I have a 15 year old. He's been in and out, you know, some virtual, some hybrid, some traditional, and just constantly bouncing back and forth. But for the most yeah. part, he's still interacting with his friends. I guess mm-hmm. tell our listening audience, which is a lot of us do live here in the South. Wh- how are the kids doing in areas that where they've been virtual for the whole year? How's the the mental well being of, of students? Yeah. I mean, this is the agony of being a superintendent um, in the era of distance learning. You know, I, I have visited many Zoom classrooms and, and talked with teachers and kids and families and seen the, some of the great work that's going on. And, you know, it really is remarkable how our staff, our students, our families have adapted to make this work. And it is true that some of our children um, are thriving in this environment. And, and that's why we're launching a Highline Virtual Academy next year. You know, one of the things we've learned is that, you know, this, this sort of more, you know, self-paced online environment does indeed work for some kids and we want them to have that option. But for the vast majority, the, um, the disconnection is powerful and it's painful. And, um, you know, I have a, a superintendent student leadership team that I meet with regularly. And we had a meeting this week and, you know, these are all, you know, high school kids and, you know, terrific young people. And these students are, are the ones I'm, I'm, you know, um, not as worried about, right. Because I'm seeing them They're They're making the time to be part of my leadership team. They're showing up. So I, I, I know they're doing okay. And yet they're not doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, even for our kids who have the support and the connectivity that they need to remain engaged, motivation right now is incredibly hard. It's waning. Um, depression is setting in. Sense of isolation um, is setting in as well. And you know, the longer this goes on, the more those those problems are going to grow. And that is why, despite the concerns and the fears that exist in our community, I just believe strongly that we have to begin bringing our kids back into buildings and into safe, socially distanced contact with one another um, because it, it, it is taking a toll. And I see it and I hear it every week. And, and I assume um, you guys have no athletics, no, you know, major so events. Correct. Yeah, correct. No, no, our kids have had, you know, nothing. And, and this, we, we did, we did return it, um, our student athletes in very small pods for in-person practice just a couple weeks ago. So that has started, but no athletic competitions, nothing like that. And, and I think that is the most, that is the thing that, that breaks my heart and makes me angry the most is that students in this country have had a full year of school with all of the events that go along with that, be it sporting events, et cetera. And our kids here in this part of the country have had none of that. They've been deprived of all of that. It's got to, yeah, that's got to be tough. Cause it's like, if everybody did what you were doing, you may think like we would have gotten through this sooner, but it's like, everyone can't get on the same page. So I'm sure that has to be frustrating as a a school leader. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. And, And so let me ask you this. What do you see as a solution? Vaccinate teachers? Is that kind of your push right now? Um, well, obviously I'm pushing for our, our educators and staff to get 
vaccine priority. And we're working with a local hospital to do that. Unfortunately, given the supply issues, I don't know when that will be. Mm-hmm. And the CDC is very clear. And I believe their reports coming out today that they agree with prioritizing educators um, for the vaccine, but that the vaccine is not a precondition to return students to school. So we can't wait for the vaccine in order to begin bringing our kids back. Um, and so while I will continue to, um, be very vocal on working to provide the vaccine to my staff who want it, that can't get in the way of returning students to our schools, um, as soon as we can. I want to say, I saw your neighbor to the South, um, Oregon, the uh, governor there, did she bump up educators? Did you hear this story that she bumped them up in terms of priority, even ahead of a lot of seniors, just because she knows that we've got to get kids back in the class? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, and I know, you know, it's, uh, again, <laughs> you know, uh, I feel betrayed by my geography to put it, I don't yeah. know, but because I talk with my superintendent friends in Texas and Ohio and Arizona and Illinois, and, you know, they've had their two shots and the majority of their staff who wants it has had their shots. Mm-hmm. And here in Washington state, I have no idea when that day is going to to become available for the majority of my staff here. And there's something profoundly wrong with that. Yeah. Well, well, hopefully everything does, you know, come to an end soon for you guys and you guys can get back in the classroom and everything. Um, March 1st, that's what we hope to welcome the little ones back. Excellent. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Excellent. Well, Dr. Susan Enfield, I I really appreciate you sharing, you know, all the great work that you guys are doing with the Highland Promise. I thought it was a unique idea. I, I haven't really heard anybody say, you know, like you said, everyone you know, wants to do this, but to actually say this is what we're going to do and try to actionably do it, I, I think you need to be applauded for. Thank you. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Well, I don't know if I'm ready, but let's do it. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, gosh. Um, reading. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Empathy. What does every child deserve? A team of a team consisting of school staff and their families that are working together, um, all with the singular goal of that student's success. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? In this moment in time, having to constantly adapt uh, to our changing reality and balancing uh, caring for themselves and their own families uh, while also serving children of other families. What's the best gift to give an educator? Appreciation. Which teacher changed your life? Mm. I would say uh, Sister Sheila, second grade. Sister Sheila, what, what state was that in? California. Okay. What's up? St. Nicholas in Los Altos, California. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right. Again, Dr. Susan Enfield with Highline School District. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Did I pass, Nick? You didn't tell me. You you absolutely passed. Okay, good. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. 
I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>